This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. ORFM apologises for the faulty sound in the first six minutes of the following programme. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces, their bubbles around the world. I'm Samuel Mann, I'm at Otago Polytechnic today, and I'm joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora Mawera. Hello Sam, how's it going? It's going very well indeed. How is Fakatani today? Uh, it's good. This is the um, this is a reasonably coolish day. We're in the mid twenties, heading to the thirties by the end of the week, apparently, which is horrendous. You like it, don't you? Down to the beach, doing some surfing. No, 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 no. Sit by the air conditioning unit. Don't leave the house. <laughs> and who That's are we my favourite thing today? to do on a hot day. Um, today it is my great pleasure to introduce Chris Williamson, um, who is one of our colleagues at Otago Polytech. He's the Head of Community Development and Personal Wellbeing, which of course is uh, dear to both mine and your heart, Sam, uh, in the work that we do in our community. So Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to our korero. Kia ora koutou, thank you for having me today. Welcome Chris. How was your bubble life? Uh, the bubble life was really interesting actually, it, it, it had some wonderful opportunities to figure out how to do things differently. Uh, the transition uh, of commuting to and from work was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I could literally roll out of bed and be at work which was uh, very enjoyable for somebody who encourages sleeping in as much as possible. Um, and some interesting experiences learning how Zoom works. In my area we do a lot of face-to-face -face work, um, a lot of uh, talking to each other, um, so doing that through technology was, a, was an interesting experience. You're head of college, were you head of colleging during that time or were you doing some teaching? How, what were you doing? Uh, mostly head of colleging, um, so interesting term, I like that one. Um, so. <laughs> A lot of my time was looking at uh, processes and how to support the students to make sure that things would be um, supportive and safe for them and looking at how to continue with the work, uh, supporting staff members who didn't quite know what was going on, um, supporting staff members and everything that was happening outside of their lives because we had a lot of staff who were supporting whanau um, outside uh, what was going on within those spaces and trying to work with the students who didn't necessarily have access to technology and there was a lot of vulnerabilities around that. Um, and some of it was working at institution level, uh, looking at things like how we can have a um, equity-based approach to supporting the students rather than equality, so rather than going down a track of everybody gets a 5% bump in their mark, how do we support people with what they need based on their individual experiences. Um, so working in those spaces, it was um, there was some really great stuff that came out of it actually. You've, in community development, I, I imagine that you've got a much more diverse student group than other places. Uh, yes, yeah, I think it would be a fair description. We have everything from level two foundation programs through to degree and grad dip programs. 85% of all of our programs are sub-degree programs and we have a significant cohort of people where education hasn't been a successful or positive space for them uh, from everything from level 2 programs within the prison that we do in partnership with the Graham Lowe Foundation um, through to supporting people in the bachelor's program, bachelor's social services, working in counselling, career practice, mental health disability, where those students are kind of working in those spaces and everything in between really. Um, but we have a lot of students where, like I say, their, their history of education hasn't necessarily been 
um, giving them the outcomes that they were hoping for. We've talked to people about learning on the edge and the, the benefits of learning in uncomfortable spaces and the disruption. But hearing you talk about those students that haven't had a history of success in education, it makes me think that those things that I just said about were almost first world problems. That that's a sort of a luxurious position to be in. If you if you all if, if you had bad experiences of education and you've got to that safe space, you don't need that to be res- disrupted. No, no, and I think there was some really interesting stuff that came out of using like online learning. Um, technology within those spaces. So for example one of the things that we found is that when you use something like Microsoft Teams or Zoom it literally takes you into the other person's house. So you you see inside their space and for some of our students um, who came from histories of deprivation they didn't want people seen in their space. There was a sense of massive discomfort about that. Now they can come into our space and have that normalised with everybody else. But us going into their space, there's kind of there's a bit of an invasion of privacy within that for some people. So when things like um, Skype and uh, Zoom and Teams actually had the ability to blur out the background or change the background, I mean, we, we, we use that as a bit of a gimmick around this is a really nice way of showing that I'm sitting on the beach when I'm doing this. But in reality, for some people, it actually gave them the ability to maintain some privacy and integrity in their own space around that. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Pink Floyd, Learning to Fly. You got a story for this one? Um, I just love the, I love Pink Floyd. Um, but I also think the experience of learning to fly when the, the, the wings are starting to ice up and everything's going slightly pear-shaped is always an interesting uh, way of looking at education. Just an earth of 
Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui ki a koutou ko tahohau. I hope you're all having the best day of your stars in your beloved universes. I really hope that wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together, very rewarding, very sustained and illuminating for you more and more each day, who you are, the triumph of nature's art. Perfect, unique, yeah, Mahita. Thank you. So beautiful people. I've been having the most wonderful time, of course. I've been very excited to talk to all about it. So grateful for these five minutes together each day. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team. Thank you to the best radio station in the world, ORFM. We love you. And I really hope that for all of you, you're having a great week. So yesterday, I had the wonderful pleasure and privilege of working with the amazing Mornington School and their teachers very passionate about them having nature connection in their lives and you know she really recognizes the importance of this and the impact on these lovely young people when they don't have that nature connection so it's wonderful to hear this from a teacher and i'm just so grateful for that vision and that understanding of the importance of nature connection for all of us throughout our lives but particularly having that foundation in terms of our emotional resilience from day one i have found the knowledge that I'm connected to all life in an infinite web, that I'm perfect, that I'm unique, that I'm a living, breathing triumph of nature's art. All of these knowings, deeply reassuring and helpful. And knowing that the, the natural world, the more the human world, is always there for me, and I don't, I don't need anything in order to access it. I'm already part of it. I'm always connected to it. All these things, so reassuring and so helpful. So I try to reinforce this knowing for the young people that I work with, which is really fun. And of course, they really love it. And yesterday we had a wonderful day. We found some dragonfly larvae in the pond. were absolutely huge. It's very exciting. And dragonfly larvae, they do really You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking gorgeous. with Chris Williamson. And I think oh, we've got the sound sorted now. We them up. It's quite unusual because they live in these tunnels in the bank. They go around to the container and they eat all the other creatures in the container. It's very exciting. And after I had had a wonderful time with Mornington School, I was very lucky to go and do a radio show with my wonderful friend Ismay and Rupert, who are some other lovely young people who are part of the Town Belt Kaitiaki, which is a fantastic group of young people who are protecting the Town Belt. And of course, Town Belt in Aote Dunedin is one of the really first major conservation efforts that took place here uh, after European settlers arrived and that started in the late 1800s and it meant that it's one of the only Victorian town belts that has been preserved, one of only three in the whole world. So it's very significant and having that right in the middle of town is not only as a habitat but it's also this wonderful opportunity for everyone to engage with it and benefit from that life and that abundance and that beauty in the middle of an urban environment. 
So these wonderful young people town about Kaitiaki, they do lots of trapping and bird feeding and raising awareness for the town belt. And I was on their radio show, which was very exciting. And one of the things that we talked about, of course, and what do I love, what a canoe and seeing what people do when we work together, inspiring. And Rupert also brought up this idea of, I talked about co-evolution, he brought up this idea of randomness and, you know, is it random or how... The, all these things have unfolded and isn't it fascinating and, and I said I don't think it is random I think it's a case of life working together and even if things initially appear random to us when we look a little bit closer and we go a little bit deeper we find that relationship and we find that actually things are not random things are a product of of that love and that relationship and that care of life working together cooperating and co-evolving and that's why we are where we are so it was a really fascinating time so i hope for you you're having lots of inspiring wonderful people around you you're enjoying contributing your own unique magic to this beautiful paradise you find ourselves in and i look forward to talking to you tomorrow thanks so much Kakite. it was interesting uh, when sam and i were listening to shay yesterday in her interview she was talking about um, having enrolled in a master's and having now positioned herself as a learner, which was a big shift from being a teacher and being an expert now to being a learner. And I wondered, you know, how how do you think it was for our lecturers and teachers and, and tutors, um, our colleagues who had to recreate their entire way of delivering a, their curriculum or their program um, and that shift from positioning themselves as teachers to then becoming learners and then how was it for the learners to position from um, in-class learners to, do you think there was this conscious position changing? Um, yeah, yeah, maybe not universally, but I think there absolutely was. There was the, like from the teaching staff, um, there was a lot of that very, very rapid acquisition of new knowledge around technology of just how to get online, how to make these things work. And if nothing else, then that gave a, a massive amount of empathy towards the students' experience who were doing online learning and within that space. So there was almost a week there of the conversations of, are you there? Are you there yet? Are you on yet? Am I on yet? Have I got this microphone turned on? So I think there was absolutely that kind of um, back and forth process around trying to figure out how we're actually making this work and the um, I think sometimes the learners were better at that than than um, where's the teaching staff were um, so there's definitely a conscious uh, acknowledgement of that space uh, for the learners I think the ones that engaged with the online uh, for some of them they absolutely loved it and the ones who actively engaged in that process um, some did really really well with that space my wondering in the space was the the silent ones who disappeared um, because when you're sitting in a classroom and you've got 20 odd people in the classroom you can see the ones who are disengaged within that process when you're sitting there in a Microsoft Teams meeting and it's got four um, uh, the split screen up with four people on it and you're just a tiny little icon down the bottom nobody knows what you're doing now that might be fine that might give you the space to sit quietly within that space but it could also mean that you've turned it on and you're not actually there um, within that so uh, it was much much harder for us to know um, how safe people felt within that space and the level of engagement they felt within that space and also um, thinking about those learners who wouldn't engage well in the digital space. Sometimes learners come to class for the, not because they want the learning necessarily or even the qualification, it's just to belong to something. Yeah. Then, then, And so being in a classroom full of people, you belong to something that's bigger than yourself and then take that away from them and then where do they sit? Absolutely. I mean, we, we work on the basis within um, human services uh, the the quality of the relationship is one of the best predictors of the outcome of the of the work that will happen for the people who engage with it, uh, and a, a a really important part of that is that kanoi to kanoi, the face to face work that people do, and when that is seen as being uh, detached, it seems to diffuse the effectiveness of it. Uh, and I think this goes into the research that I was looking at not so long ago around the the ongoing sense of loneliness for young people. There was this idea that because young people engage with um, social media that they're well engaged through technology of being connected, but that doesn't seem to be the outcome. The, the engagement with social media 
in many ways comes across as a, a surface level engagement. They don't have that that depth of interpersonal connection with people around them. And education is actually a really nice way of having a structured, safe place for that to happen. It's really, really hard to go into a, a, an informal situation where you've got to socially engage with other people around you. Coming into a classroom, there's a structure to it. There's a lecturer who sits in front of it. You, there's times when you talk and there's times when you don't. So you kind of know what the rules are. And I think when you're coming in, uh, if there's any struggles with that, that's a really, really nice environment to scaffold you into that process. I remember Sam uh, commenting to one of the people we interviewed about when we came to level two that we should forever know that as National Hug Day because that's what everybody wanted to do. Everybody wanted to hug and it was that connection that we missed and yes, we can have that on social media and everything but that's that will never take the place of being able to shake someone's hand or just, just the physical presence of a person. Absolutely. I, yeah, I read this brief bit around the um, why is it we're so exhausted after doing so many Zoom meetings or team meetings and um, one of the theories in the article is like the, the brain is structured to read emotional cues in the face of what we see around it and when we're having to interpret a three-dimensional expectation from a two-dimensional screen the brain actually has to try to reinterpret that back into it of saying this is what the emotional cue is that this person is giving me. And I thought, well, I don't know how valid that is, but it certainly explains why I'm absolutely exhausted at the end of a day of staring at a screen and seeing people's faces on it, trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I get that. Chris, when we started the show, we described it as positive but not diluted. Yeah. What's your take on how the pandemic response and people's visions of recovery and how the community is going is in terms of that that positive but perhaps not diluted um i think to start off with i think we're really lucky in this country um i think that we are constantly bombarded with um, information on the media about how things are happening around the world and there's a real sense of um, security and safety being in a little country at the bottom of the world where nobody really knows where we are um so i think that's that's a really good outcome within that space. Uh, there is, I guess, increasing information coming through that the tail in this process is not going to be a short tail, that the vaccination process is not going to miraculously fix everything. And personally, I, I think we're looking sort of to the end of next year before we're really talking about borders opening up and people coming into the country and that sort of free flow of um, people travelling again. I don't think this is going to be a quick or a short fix. And so that has some pretty significant long-term impacts of where we're going and what this is going to mean for us. Overall, uh, I think that government agencies and organisations have actually done a really good job in this country. And I think I've been amazingly impressed with how uh, the population and community across the country has basically got on board with how can we all get together to solve this and, and minimise the risk and minimise the impact that this is having on us because some people are going through massive pain with this process, absolutely massive pain um, and there have been a variety of policies and processes and structures put in place in trying to cushion those blows for people um, and I think ultimately that's going to come down to the community of support who are around people uh, and trying to give them the opportunities where instead of being you've done something wrong it's like this was literally done to you there's not much you can do about it and how can we help you and that's that's really nice to see that that gives me a real sense of hope one of the things we've talked about a lot is the be kind message and how successful that has been and then we started talking about how hang on why were we not being kind before why did it take this for us to be kind and then we realised that actually we were being kind and that's why it resonated mm. I think in your field being kind is perhaps an underlying principle to start with but for the rest of us it's not a thing which has been articulated as a thing on which decisions can be made yeah I think there's there's a concept called unconditional positive regard that sits within person-centred counselling and the idea of that is that it's a, it's, an, it's a faith in the capacity or the belief of the people that you're working with 
that they have the ability to create some change in their life. Now, it's not about cheerleading the person. It's not about being nice to the person when they are doing things which are massively problematic. It's around the belief in the idea that the person has capacity for change and some agency to be able to support them in doing that. Now, there's also really good research around that you need other things to go along with that. You can't just have the um, faith in somebody's capacity for change to happen. The environment has to support it. They have to have a genuine person who's working with them. Um, they need honesty and integrity in the processes so they're working with them. But these things actually increase the likelihood of people making successful change in their life. Now, what decreases successful change in life is when people are directed and told what they have to do in a way that makes them feel defensive or upset. And uh, again, it seems to be the more somebody is directed to do something or told to do something, as opposed to feeling like they have agency and they have a voice within the process, the less likely they are to do it. Uh, and what happened in this country, for as far as I can tell, is people were given a sense of agency around the we can't tell you what to do but if you support us with this and we do it all together as a nation then we can actually create a really good change out of that and I think that was an unbelievably clever way of working with people and supporting people to work together as opposed to trying to direct people because we've had hardly any of the response that they've seen particularly in America where it is a response to that you can't tell me what to do Absolutely, and I, I, I don't know, I've been to the States a couple of times and I, I always say, everybody I met when I was over there were absolutely lovely people and they all seem rational, they all seem to have a really good idea in what they were talking about and we visited quite a few different places and looking from the outside in and seeing what's going on, I, I, I kind of scratch my head. It doesn't represent the people that I experienced when I went there. It doesn't represent the values and what people spoke about. Um, but it's definitely a nation divided and one of the things in their uh, recent politics has been that sort of divide and conquer and you win or lose type of process. There's been very little around that bipartisan approach of working together to create outcomes and it's around that kind of um, uh, attacking position of I will win therefore you will lose and I think any any time you go into that type of space of trying to collectively move uh, a community, you're actually just going to divide and split the community as opposed to bringing them into a space of working together. When I think about unconditional positive regards, I, I think about that, I've spent a lot of time thinking about unconditional positive regard and that's thanks to you directly, so thank you. Um, but it, um, I've come down to some some broken it up into some simple concepts of choice and empathy without either of those two it just doesn't work and I see what the government did was enabled us to participate in that process by providing us with choice we can choose to not care about people or we can choose to care about people and then the application of that caring which is the empathy and uh, and it's, it's just been amazing to sit and watch unconditional positive regard play out on the team of 5,000, our whole country. It's been a remarkable thing to see. Absolutely. And I think um, empathy is a, a, is a concept which sometimes gets mixed up with sympathy. And I think that empathy is around genuinely understanding the other person in a way that they perceive. Like they perceive you genuinely understanding. It's not whether I think I know you, it's whether you believe I know you. And that's that's the critical part of empathy. And the government did a good way of being empathetic to the New Zealand, wider New Zealand culture uh, and values and beliefs that sit within that. I think they, they, they did that really nicely. And choice is, um, choice to me, like implies power. So with choice you have autonomy. With autonomy you have power. And there's nothing worse than being in a situation where you feel absolutely powerless, when you're, you're a victim of the circumstances of what's going around you. And COVID put us in a powerless position. But what they did, and what they did really cleverly, is they looked at what level of autonomy and choice do we have within that context. So we may be in a box, we don't like the box, but how do we move to the extremes within that box to move to the very edges, rather than just sitting in the middle and saying, there's nothing we can do about this. And again, I think they did that really well. So if you then break that down, choice and empathy, 
I've come up with imagination as being at the core of all of that. Where do you see imagination sitting in that space? I really like that idea. I hadn't thought of it that way before, actually. Like, I, I think imagination to me is looking at that, um, the individual's way of seeing how they connect with people around them. We can imagine positive things. We can imagine negative things. Um, the brain seems to be hardwired to pay attention to bad things around us, which, I mean, from a purely survival point of view, is probably a good idea. If a very long time ago you wandered out of a cave and there's a large creature that wants to eat you and a beautiful rainbow probably pays attention to pay attention to the large creature that wants to eat you as opposed to the wonderful rainbow. So I get that and I get the fact that negative events capture our attention and it's really important that we focus on them. But imagination actually gives us the space to think outside of that box, to think outside of that square and look at the, well, what could it be? What can we do? What can I do? How can I apply myself differently within this context? Um, and sometimes it actually just lets us have freedom from what's going on in our daily lives, which can actually be pretty nice. And you must have to help people with that imagination. I, I can imagine that if you're doing the miracle question, you, you, it's getting a bit one level better or however you describe it. I imagine that you do get the response of, well, I don't know. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I remember years ago when I was working with a client, we had a competition and I would just keep a tally record of how many I don't knows they would have in a session and we'd see if we could outnumber the <laughs> I don't knows that we had between the sessions. It became a bit of a competition and a bit of a game. Um, but then, uh, it's kind of like, because you can't just say I don't know. That actually implies that you're actively engaged in the process. It's all one word. Uh. <laughs> um, so, sorry, slightly off topic there. Um, when... Uh, when you're talking with somebody, the concept that I quite like is how can I put this information in a way that is more likely for the person to engage in it, as opposed to how am I telling somebody something that they may need to hear but they don't want to hear. Um, so I remember years and years ago working with a young person who was sent to see me and it was one of those mandated clients. They'd been told you have to go see a counsellor. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's directed by the police, by youth justice of the police, and um, back in those days, child, youth, and family. And the client came in and said, I said, So what brings you in here? And he goes, Cops have told me I have to come in. It's like, Okay, so what do you want to get out of coming here? I don't know. So do you want to be here? No. Nah. So, okay. So my question then to him was, Well, what do you have to do to never come back and see me again? How can you get out of here as quickly as possible so that you never have to come back and have this conversation with me again? And then he's like, ah, okay. And started to talk to me about what it was that he needed to do. And interestingly enough, as people talk about the behaviours they need to do, they're more likely to engage in them. So uh, if you're looking at uh, people giving up smoking, simply talking to somebody about the, have you ever considered giving up smoking? What do you think life would be like if you gave up smoking? There's about a 5% chance somebody will actually give up smoking just from having that conversation alone. Because people focus on the what they are talking about, they're more likely to do. Which is why if you're talking about what they need to do, they're less likely to actually do it. Because then they'll come up with all the reasons of why it can't work. And then they spend the entire conversation going, oh, yeah, no, I'm not sure that'll really work. Or well, And as they give you all the reasons why it won't work, that's what they think about. As they give you the reasons of why it could work, and that's the imagination, how do you hook into their thinking about possibilities and opportunities, then hopefully they'll go, look, go and give it a go. So what do we need to do to engage not just the individual but the whole community in things which we don't really want to do? We don't really want to address climate change because we're quite happy having carrying on with the party we're having. Yep. Do those same things apply at a community level and to those bigger sorts of questions? I, interestingly enough, I would have said it's a massive challenge to figure out how to talk to an entire community and bring an entire community on board. But COVID's actually a really nice example of where that's been done and done really well because there was... I guess the difference is like there was an immediate issue that people saw right in front of them the climate change is the in the future this is going to happen therefore we need to do x y and z and people can delude themselves into the space of thinking well that's not now i don't need to worry about that whereas covid it's like do this right now or um 
catch this um, infection which has a chance of killing you. So I think that's that's probably about as close as we're ever going to get to an immediate uh, thing that needs to be done. Having said that, there's lessons in the way the government engaged with the community, engaged with organisations and actually provided some real leadership within this space. Um, if you're going to do something in the area of climate change or other areas where we've got um, examples of social deprivation or people not achieving well within education or things like this, you actually need somebody to stand up with some real leadership and take a risk. They've got to hang their neck out and they are going to cop some really negative feedback for doing that. There's, there's a massive risk in this. And it's a difficult one for politicians because they want to get revoted. They want to get back in. And putting your neck out and putting in place a policy or an example of things that people don't like or people don't agree with or they don't want to go along with uh, is is difficult. But I think that's the role of the politicians, to provide leadership within this space. Um, and hopefully they'll, they'll look at some of the lessons in some of the processes they did with COVID and they'll apply it to other areas. They'll apply it to areas within education. They'll apply it to areas of social change, social deprivation, a whole bunch of other areas as well as looking at um, climate change and saying, well, actually, we, we need to get on. We need to do this. We've certainly shown that we can do stuff. Absolutely. If we set our minds to it. Absolutely. And the... Um, the significant changes that were put in place around um, the environmental impacts of the things that we were doing when we were in lockdown actually showed that it, it can be done. It's the sustainability of it uh, is the difficulty. How do we actually take these wins and make them, embed them, and um, continue them going? Because, again, um, from what I understand, like human brain works on pattern recognition and it likes predictability. Predictability is safe. It doesn't mean good. It just means that if I believe A is going to happen and I've predicted it's happened, then it reduces my anxiety. Even if I know that A is going to be a bad thing that's happening, I can still predict that that's going to occur. Now that, in a strange way, is more safe for me than looking at a complete unknown and I don't know what's going to happen. And the problem with climate change is there's a whole bunch of unknowns within that space. Having said that, there was a cartoon I saw that I really, really liked the other day and it basically had a couple of dinosaurs there they were having a conversation with each other and the meteorite was coming down to slam into the planet and one of them turned around to the other one and said oh no the economy and I think that was a really nice example of the you know maybe we actually need to shift our focus a little bit here so we've seen lots of changes over the last few months what do you think will stick and what do you hope will stick I hope one of the things that will stick is that concept of um, equity versus equality, that we actually look at the what people need and what the um, individuals and communities and groups need rather than trying to find the silver bullet and apply that. There's a real risk within the space of trying to find a simple answer and apply that. Um, Chenoweth and Chenoweth came up with uh, the concept of wicked problems and the idea of wicked problems is when you fix one thing you actually break something else and a silver bullet in that approach is when you try to apply a simplistic solution to a really complex problem. These things aren't simple and it's not going to be a single soundbite piece that creates all this change. You actually need to look at complexity and people have to take a risk in this space. You're going to have to apply some things that are actually not going to work and then you're going to have to admit that what you did didn't work and I'm sorry we broke things but we've now had some learning out of that and we're going to try again. That This emphasis that we have to get it right all the time and we've got to be perfect means that we, we move away from that space of taking risks and trying things and I think it, it makes people afraid of stepping up and being a leader because if you step up as a leader and you make a mistake you tend not to be able to stay in that position and that's happened to a variety of people and I hope that we can if we can see that people are genuinely trying to create their positive change, we we give them the opportunity to try some different things um, and make some mistakes. I have some questions to end the show. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, I'm a middle child, so I grew up with what at the time was called an obsession with fairness. I like to believe that that obsession with fairness turned into the concept of social justice, and I think that 
there have been some beautiful examples of social justice being applied. One of the things that I was really proud of of this institution is that when we moved from looking at the embedded policies and practices we had in supporting students with COVID to actually looking at an equity-based approach and completely rewrote our policies and processes to support our student cohorts so that they could um, uh, get the best possible supports for us. Now, there's a massive amount of uh, work and follow-on work from the institution of doing that, but I think that's something we can be really proud of in that space. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in the team. What is the superpower that's got you into our mansion? Um, I guess off the top of my head, and never really thought of superpowers for this one, I, I think the superpowers that the uh, collective, collective equity-based approach, which in some ways sounds like it contradicts each other because equity is around like looking at what the people need it as opposed to doing and applied across the whole group. Um, and stepping outside of uh, our, ourselves. Um, so I guess empathy the genuine understanding of what people need by engaging in conversations with them and seeing whether that actually works and going back to the idea spoken about previously around their unconditional positive regard that that genuinely genuine belief that people can and will make changes when they're well supported to do so so do you consider yourself to be an activist I've never really thought of myself that way. I do. I, I got asked once whether I ever thought I was kind of like an ambitious person. I've never thought that I am. But I was always raised with this idea, if you're going to do a job, do it properly. So um, I guess if you take a, a slight obsession with social justice and a belief that if you're going to do something, do it properly, that's possibly a label that other people might attach. I just kind of work on the idea that if things aren't fair, you need to do something about it. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, look, I'm really lucky working in, the, in education, and education is probably one of the best social levers for creating social mobility and change. And I think we work in an incredibly privileged space in helping people actually genuinely change their lives. And I'm really lucky I also work in an institution which has a value proposition that says our people change the world, and they do. We have a lot of first and families going through in the process and learning with us. Now, we, we have students within programs where they've come from a history of educational success. They've come from really supportive environments financially, emotionally, um, resources, etc. But we have people at the, uh, the complete opposite end where they haven't come into that space. And hearing people hearing their family members, seeing their kids stand at pre-grad and talk about what they're now doing in their lives and the spaces and places that they're now going that they never imagined they could previously, that's an amazing privilege to be involved in supporting people in that journey. So so what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or two? Um, I'm really curious around where Tepukina is headed within the um, bringing us all together process because I hope that within that space we'll be continuing to look at equity as averse to equality because standardisation doesn't standardisation works for people who fit within the norms. It doesn't fit for people who sit outside those norms. Um, and there's again within those challenges there's some real opportunities for us within these spaces and. I, I hope that we have the ability to actually take up those challenges and bring about some real real genuine um, process changes uh, that allow people to, to make their world a better place. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Uh, I thought a little bit about this one and... Um, it's kind of there's, there's two bits of advice with this one which sound like they contradict each other but it kind of makes sense the first bit is if you're going to do a job do it properly so like have your passion and apply yourself the other thing is when I was at school I used to have written on the pencil case at school when all else fails lower your standards and I remember some teaching staff saying to me yes Chris but that shouldn't be your aim in life if you take those two ideas together what it means is that if you try something and it doesn't work and you've given it your best effort Go back and try it again, but maybe don't expect yourself to be as perfect or have this amazing outcome or an amazing result. Give it another go. Don't give up just because it didn't work. Maybe lower your standards a bit. Maybe be a little bit more realistic about what you can achieve, but don't ever give up. Moira, 
Oh, Chris, this has been an amazing quarter all. Thank you very much. It's been really neat um, sort of listening to your experience and the the change in the way that we were teaching um, and to hear your how unconditional positive regard works for you and your thinking and in your practice. And I just want to thank you for, um, for all the work that you're doing in that space and the way that you're supporting our colleagues and our learners and um, the wider community. Thank you. Hey, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. It's been really interesting and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you both. been listening to blowing bubbles positive conversations with people in their bubbles their safe spaces around the world we're broadcast on otago access radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz you can find us on facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we had a contribution today from tahu mckenzie we're listening now to peter gabriel Biko. I'm Samuel Mann at Otago Polytechnic in Dunedin with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani and sitting beside me, Chris Williamson. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.